Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to a Mouse Clubhouse Conversation. Hi, this is Scott Wolf, and this conversation is with Larry Billman. Before working for Disney, Larry began his career as a performer on stage, screen, and television before becoming a writer-director of Disney Resort Live Entertainment Worldwide. For over 40 years, he was involved in the production of hundreds of live shows at Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Tokyo Disneyland, and Tokyo Disney Sea. Among those shows, Larry wrote the Hoop-Dee-Doo Review, one of the longest-running dinner shows in American history. That show debuted in 1974, and as of 2016, the show continues to delight audiences at the Fort Wilderness Resort in Walt Disney World. Although when people think of the Disney parks, oftentimes the first thing that comes to mind are the attractions or characters, but the live entertainment is no less important. And for me personally, it has provided some of my most goosebump moments and emotional Disney memories. The shows have continued to grow and become more and more lavish over the years, even expanding to the Disney Cruise Line and the Broadway stage, and Larry was involved right from the beginning of it all. Larry also was a show director for Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus, the Disney character director of Disney on Ice, director of entertainment at Tokyo Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea, VP of entertainment at Walt Disney World, director of entertainment at Huis Ten Bosch, which I hope I pronounced correctly, and that's in Japan, as well as Sanrio Puroland. He was a director of show development in Parque España in Manila and director of culture and entertainment for the USA Pavilion at Expo 2010 in Shanghai, China. An historian of Hollywood dance, Larry founded the nonprofit Academy of Dance and Film. Always encouraging me in my own historic research, Larry has been a longtime supporter of my Mouse Clubhouse work, and he's responsible for some of the other interviews that I've done on here. But his own Disney story is just as fascinating, and I know you'll enjoy it. To begin this conversation from 2008, I asked Larry about his first association with Disney, which was appearing in the 1963 film Miracle of the White Stallions. Here's Larry Billman. I got drafted in 1960, and I thought it was the end of my life. I was, yeah. I was going to be in the movie Gypsy as one of the boys and so oh, forth. I had to I leave it all, and I thought, oh no, there goes the end of my life. Well, it wasn't. It was the beginning of my life. Hmm. Got there and I worked in Heidelberg, Germany. Worked and lived in Heidelberg, Germany as a company clerk. Uh, in the meantime, I was directing shows for the, um, the Army and Civilians Theater there. Then also the German theater asked me to direct for them. And I had a friend, a friend, a film director named Arthur Hiller, who was coming to Vienna to direct a, a movie called The Miracle of the White Stallions. Miracle of the White Stallions is one of those lost Disney movies because it's based on historical fact about the rescue of the Lipizzaner horses from the Spanish Riding Academy by the American troops, uh, led by General Patton. Going, getting, the Russians had them. The Russians had taken them out of Austria, and were, I don't know where they were going to take them during the war. And I'm not blaming the Russians. Everybody stole from everybody else, uh, but it was considered a national treasure. So that's the story. Not, not a lot of laughs. So uh, he was making this, and he called and said, could I come to Vienna and do a couple of weeks in this movie? And I'm sure that was to save costs, because rather than flying somebody from America. So I did, went there, had a great time. I worked with Robert Taylor, Eddie Albert, Lily Palmer. And I remember there's a couple of scenes that Eddie Albert and I had 
where we got a little larger than life. And after the take, Arthur Hiller would say, you're over the top. Remember, this is a Disney movie. Yeah. That's always... So we had to go back to more naturalistic performances. There was a man named Peter Harold who asked me if I, when I finished my tour of duty in the Army, which was December of 63, would I come to Austria and sign a contract to work for Disney there. They were making films. Not many people know this, but during the war, millions of dollars got locked around the world. So Disney actually had an Austrian unit that they had to spend the money there. So they made, oh, there's a film that they made with Walter Slezak about the uh, Vienna Boys Choir. Uh, there was about, they even made one about Johann Strauss, the Waltz King. They had to make movies. And they were looking for actors who were combat compatible to what they were doing. So he, you know, asked, would I be interested in that? And stupid me. No, no, it turned out right. I, what? Are you nuts? I'm going back to Hollywood. Of course, I went back to Hollywood in unemployment, but had I accepted that, I don't know where my life would have gone. Yeah. So that was my first uh, experience with Disney. It was several continents removed. There weren't any really Disney people around, but it was a, a nice experience. What did you do in that? You, what was your part in that? I play an American soldier, a hey, typecasting. <laughs> yeah who's back at the castle. The army comes in and takes over a castle and set up a whole radio room. And I'm the radio guy who is listening. They are sending me messages and telling me they've located the horses, they've caught up with the horses, they've turned the horses around, and the horses are on their way. So I deliver all these messages to Lily Palmer, Eddie Albert, so forth and so on about that. The, and, the, and they're all mares. So I have some line about, you tell them your girlfriends are on the way. I'm from Texas and <laughs> eat stale fudge. It's, it's an interesting piece of levity in a rather serious movie. Yeah. So it was a nice little thing that I did. After working on Disney on Parade as one of the choreographers, I then was introduced to Bob Yanni. <clears throat> and he had been told that I also wrote shows. So he asked if I would like to write something coming up, which was a summer show. So when I arrived at Disneyland Entertainment Division, it was a handful of people. Even the first five or ten years that I worked for it, we were all in one room downstairs in the basement of the administration building. Now you had said Disney on Parade you were working on. That was outside of Disney? Disney on Parade was produced by, and I may be a little bit vague on some of these, but Bob Yanni was the executive producer. Oh. Bob Yanni, who was then the entertainment, uh, the director of entertainment for Disneyland Entertainment was in charge of getting it up and on. And this was a show, right? This wasn't it was a, a live show. It was an arena show. It was one of the most extravagant live arena shows ever produced. And consequently, opening night, NBC took it away from Disney and cut about 400 people out of it and 3,000 sets. It was huge. It, was it, it Yeah, we didn't know about that. Disneyland itself did not know. We had not been in the arena business. We didn't know that when you budget, you have to budget for, let's say, X amount of trucks take X amount of days to get to the next location, and the setup needs to be done in two days. Still exaggerating. I think there were something like 17 trucks which took 
four weeks to set up. You can't afford that. You're renting that space. It's, it's how we get what's called the road companies, the Phantom of the Opera. It's all scaled down so that it can move economically. We didn't know that. So the show was quite beautiful to look at. It was every Disney classic that you'd ever want to see. But the idea of being on a wooden floor, we used to call it holiday on wood, because you'd have to run. Every number began with, and go, and the entire cast would have to run their hearts out to get all the way down to whatever that distance was, the length of an ice rink. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, it worked better than ice does because you could actually dance on it. You just couldn't travel on it. But it was a lavish, lavish show. After NBC took it over, it must have been... <clears throat> personally defeating to Bob Yanni, but he never let on. Uh, NBC then started producing it, and they brought on people like uh, Mark Bro and Dee Wood and Anna White and, and those kind, that level of, of Broadway and film choreographers to choreograph it. It eventually ended up in Australia. Did it? Uh-huh, uh-huh. It expatriated to Australia from where it was then sent out around the world, Asia and everywhere for... Oh, at least a decade. There are still pieces of costumes in their warehouse down there from all the editions of Disney on Parade. They did, I'll just say five, they did a, a bunch of, of um, editions of it. Patrick Swayze was in one of them. You're kidding. No, Patrick Swayze. His nickname was Buddy, and he was one of the dancers. And Buddy Swayze was, everybody talks about what a wonderful, nice kid he was. So that Didi Bozikas was in that show. Mm-hmm. There were lots and lots of people who have gone on to some interesting careers. But it was the first of the large-scale arena Disney this was somewhere around 1970 then? Or 1969, exactly 1969. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I had a really odd, odd position on it. I was one of the assistant choreographers. And at the first meeting <clears throat> with Bob Yanni, he gave out assignments. As he went around the room, he got to me and he said, and Larry, you're going to work with the circus people. <laughs> and, I, you know... In those days, as a, as a struggling performer, you never say no. Okay, circus performer. Little did I know that was a key that he gave me which would serve me well because I then worked with, there was a troupe of ladies who did an act called Iron Jaw where you hang by your yeah. teeth, you put this metal piece in your mouth. And, I, and they were doing a really sleazy shrine <laughs> circus in Texas and I had to go and live with them for at least <laughs> six weeks. Uh, because between their shows, I would then rehearse their numbers. Now, obviously, I did not rehearse what they did in the air. That was all created by an incredible man named Barbette, one word, Barbette, who ha who's a circus legend, who was a circus legend. Barbette, and I'll try to make this fast, Barbette, what he says is, used to walk his mother's clothesline. And when a circus came to town in Texas, this has to be the turn of the century, uh, there was an act that had an injury in it, and they had auditions, and they hired him. The only thing was it was an all-girl act. So he then started as a, a maybe a 13, 14-year-old boy performing as a woman. He later created a solo act in which he did quite exquisite aerial work. He worked on a trapeze, uh, so forth and so on, and the end of his act was he came down and 
pulled off his wig and the audience would gasp because they thought he was the most beautiful woman in the world. He's, he's, he's also in show business history. He was in the musical Jumbo at the Hippodrome Theater. And Jimmy Durante actually sang the song The Most Beautiful Girl in the World to him as he came down the stairs in a feathered headdress and everything. So now you fast forward at least 50 years. He's now very, very old. He also was crippled. He'd taken a fall in the mid-50s and perhaps broke every bone in his body. He then, so he walked like a glass man. Um, he then put together a group of, of female performers called the Barbette Girl, the Barbettes. And he also worked for Ringling Brothers and did all that. So here I arrive with all of these yeah. girls in this sleazy Texas area with Barbette who talked like this in this very strange accented walking like a crystal man. It was... <laughs> I, was, I had died and gone to heaven. I had the best time. Because oh, like after we worked, my job was to, because I knew what the floor work was. I had watched Miriam and the other two choreographers, Leslie and Phil, create all the floor patterns. So I knew that when the girls came into a number where they were, when they went up in the air, they were Barbette's business. But when they came back down, I then had to segue them into the floor work. I remember there was one routine that they did in the air, which was quite beautiful, hanging by their teeth with butterfly wings. And they were on what we call a carousel. It was a circular piece structure, which rotated. So three of them on each of them, there were three of the carousels too. It was gorgeous in the air. But then when they'd come down, they'd have to then make their way through the, at least, 70 dancers with these wings and make floor pattern. That's one of my best rehearsal memories. Like I said, we were playing really strange arenas. So between shows, we would go out into the lobby. It was the only space big enough that was open. And I would try to help the girls learn how to run and move with their butterfly wings. So here we all are with these girls fl fly in their wings and just as I said and go just as I see one girl go off one of the working men comes out of the restroom and I see it coming she connects with him they roll in a ball of butterfly wings him yelling and saying what happened to me finally get him up he didn't see it coming I, lo I love that memory anyway so then I brought the girls and Barbette to we were doing it in Long Beach and put them into the show so like I said, opening night, it was taken away from all of us. The, the original people had nothing ever again to do with it. But it ran a, quite a long time, had a lot of people in it, and was a beautiful, beautiful show, beautifully produced, beautiful mm -hmm. costume. So that's Disney on Parade. Did that, and then I started. They asked me, uh, Bob Yanni asked if I wanted to write a show, and I said I did, and we had a meeting. Uh, it was to be called, it was to be a review performed outdoors at the so-called temporary Tomorrowland stage. It was temporary for about 30 years. I mean, <laughs> we always laughed about this. Up until that point, again, I may not be completely right. I think they only had name talent appearing there. They may have begun the Kids of the Kingdom kinds of shows, which was a spinoff from the Young Americans, the Young Generation, all of that popular, you know, squeaky clean American yeah. kids kind of thing. But they wanted to try something a little different. They wanted to try a, a review with people in it. So, oh, so this had never been done. Never been done. Never been done. So 
Uh, and Bob knew that I had worked on Broadway, and I had I had a musical theater sensibility rather than a, a young generation or young Americans kinds of sensibility. So I was a good fit for that. And that night at the meeting, they were, and I re I'll never forget Chuck Corson. You know, somebody said, "Well, we ought to get Gower Champion." And I remember Chuck Corson said, "What are you crazy or something?" He said, "Larry, do you want to direct it?" And I said, "Yes, okay, then it's done." So suddenly I was the director then. Uh, the show, we had called See America First. The opening number was called See America First. Written, the music was written by Tom Adair, wow. who worked on The Horseshoe, later worked with me on Hoop Dee Doo. We were partners in crime. Incredible composed song. Yes, yes, yeah. Beyond let's take a trip to Niagara. Let's you know, get let's get away from it all. Yeah. And then also um, um, a composer named Paul Souter who also then worked on hoop de doo so forth and so on. We were the, the three kind of cuckoos that were assigned to this show. We talk about something for a minute and then we move to the next thing. This was about a group of tourists touring across America and what they discovered. In the meantime, it was a, an older mother and father and a teenage daughter who was played by Sherry Alberoni in our show, what? Sherry of the Mouseketeers. There was a young lover couple and we tried to be kind of avant-garde, we purposely hired African-American performers wow. to play the lovers, the, new, the young newlyweds. Um, a wonderful, crazy, hyper-kinetic tour guide played by an actor named Jim Begg, who I just read passed away like last week. B-E-G-G. -E -G. Jim Begg, if, if most of, of television fans saw his face, they'd know exactly who he was. He did every television show in the world. Really kind of hyperkinetic and little chubby face. And, you know, but anyway, he was the, the tour guide trying to control all of this. And along the way, the Statue of Liberty on roller skates shows up, played by Terry Garr, who oh, we all know what happened to her. Right. Incredible cast. Incredible cast. Uh, John Scott Trotter, who had been Bing Crosby's conductor, was the orchestra conductor. The orchestra was in front of the stage, and they, we built a passerelle that went all the way around it. So not only was the show on the stage, but it could come out and surround the orchestra. Terry Garr went into that pit at least once a week. She oh, no. look out, John, here I come, you know, which was hilarious. Anyway, wow. we had a wonderful time doing it, lots of fun. It became quite a phenomenon. Uh, and publicity had a bit, of course, publicity didn't like the... the the title, See America First, so it was called Show Me America. Really? So we'd all kind of go, and they were singing, See America First, Show Me America! You know, we'd have to throw the words in. <laughs> anyway, that ran for one whole summer, very, very successfully. Oh, and then he changed it on you after it was on the team. <laughs> then Walt Disney World was about to open, and they, want, they needed a convention show. So they asked me to take it to Florida, kind of rearrange it, because it was all very California-oriented. There was one, one terrific freeway number called L.A. Is, written by Billy Barnes, where the cast all had uh, little steering wheels in their hands and, you know, sang this funny song. So that didn't work for Florida. So we went down to Florida, had to be recast. I think there were very few of the original cast who wanted to go to Florida. Um, and it ran for conventions for a while. Then I just, I was the, the people director. I, they didn't hand me characters. 
Show Me America didn't have a single character in it. Oh, uh, Hoopty didn't have it. We didn't do that at that time. Now, characters are in everything. Uh, at Japan, it sends you insane. You could do Medea, Minnie Mouse would be starring in it. But we know that's what that audience wants to see. That's what they came to see. At that time, Disneyland was still being shaped, and it was a place where I'm very proud to say for everybody who worked for entertainment, Barnett, Ritchie, all of those people, we introduced several generations of young people to live theater. Could have been the first live theater they ever, ever saw. I'm very, very proud of the work that we did. Um, after Show Me America played, then the following summer we went back to the star system which was each week a different star. And I love that. Olivia Newton-John, Helen Reddy, Tony Orlando and Don. I mean, talk about a, a knockdown. It was just terrific. But Bob Yanni asked Barnett Ritchie and I to devise an opening number. The first year, I believe, was called The Great American Music Machine. And the set was a giant jukebox. And every week, week to week, Jack Wagner, the musical genius of all time, used to create the top ten songs of the week on tape, and Barnett would then choreograph this to the it. Jack Wagner, who's the voice of Disney. Right? The same, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, yes, he is the voice and the heart so he of did. Disneyland. Yeah, so he would choose the top ten songs. He, he wouldn't choose them. We'd go on, you know, a billboard charts. We would oh, find out what are the top ten. So some of the songs existed all summer. Suddenly in the middle of it, huh, Huh, you thought he didn't see me now, didn't you? And huh, but we had such fun with that because it was spontaneous and as each song would come on, the audience would get excited about it. And then the machine finally, the jukebox blew up oh. and on a moving platform down came the live star out of oh. the jukebox. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Helen Reddy, you know, so we went that. Terrific show, great fun, ran very, very well one summer. Then we did another one that was a pinball machine, as I recall, where the dancers actually went to change the tune, would bang against the, the things on a pinball machine, and balls would come out and the song would change. That would then blow up and out would come the star. The last one we did was Back to the Circus, and Barnett, it was one of her first introductions to that, it was called The Great Rock Circus. And what we did, again, on that terrible temporary stage, we did a design motif of a circus tent, which rose as the show began. And then girls went up and did aerial 30 feet over the top of the theater. And then at the end of that circus, out came the star. So we had, a, we had such fun with that. We also kind of pushed the boundaries of what we were doing because we were never hard rock at that time it was and that that's always been a dilemma with being disney and also there's a lot of conservative attitude i remember i was always against the costumes the girls were always covered from their necks to their ankles and my daughters at that time were watching Cher on television. They saw her yeah. booty and her belly button, and her, I thought, this is what America's seeing. Well, who are we kidding? Yeah. People do not go around in sweaters and pleated skirts anymore. So that transition was, was interesting. But again, people. There were no characters in all of that. I never did any characters. It was all of that. I also was not a parade person. I'm too literal for a parade. When Bob was developing America on parade, I used to go to the brainstorming 
meetings. Wow. And one time he, after a meeting, he said, I'd prefer it if you don't come anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, that's fine. Because I was too literal. Really? I was saying, what's the story? How are we going from this to that? That doesn't make any sense. Because Bob had taught us all, think of a parade as a moving stage show. Hmm. Rather than it moving on in a proscenium arc with curtains and so forth, it as it passes by, it moves. So I bought into that man, and I can remember American Parade. One of the ideas that I that, that I discussed was that it opened with the Statue of Liberty, with immigrants coming through it, and at the end, the Statue of Liberty is then appearing, and then Americans are coming out of it. You know, I, I, I need a through line. I've always needed a thread. Yeah. And he did that with the greatest love. So I didn't do parades. Barnett was one of the masters of that. I also didn't do... Was Barnett a director or just choreographer? Barnett was... At, when I first met her, she was an assistant choreographer to Forrest Bayruth on Show Me America. Forrest Bayruth was a friend of mine. I had worked with him as a performer in Las Vegas. And so... He did the choreography, and Barnett assisted him. Forrest then went to Walt Disney World, and Barnett then went on to greatness. Yeah. Barnett became everything then, eventually. By that time, with the Kids of the Kingdom show, when she got to the medleys, this, you know, the Disneyland is your land medley, showbiz is, all of those, those were her babies. She would ask me for my ideas, but Barnett really did, with Tom Baylor, actually, who wrote all those musical medleys. They would create that, write it, all of that, and choreograph it. his name, Tom Baylor? Tom Baylor. He was the inventor of that Disney Kids of the Kingdom sound. The boys really high with a tenor, and it was, it was a, a, a mainstay for the whole Disney look. Reading Bruce Healy's interview, he talks about fun with music. Yeah which was yet another all-people show that I did. That was created as part of an educational program. And, we, and I thought that was called the Fantasyland Theater. I think they used to show that. They had Mickey Mouse Club shows there in the early years. And I think, so terrible venue, terrible venue with no backstage. It was really the worst. But that show was lots of fun. And it was based, it had all film, and I, that was my first time to be able to go to the Disney Studios and pick and choose sound effects and, and animated lightning and so forth and so on for this thing. It was about the three characters were har harmony, melody, and what's, what's that? Rhythm. Oh, okay. Harmony, melody, and rhythm, in which they taught the kids. And that thing just turned over many, many times a day with school kids would come in, see the show, and then they would be given a workbook, which was part of their day that they would then go around the park and see um, examples of what they'd learned, either with the That's Disneyland amazing. band. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. The educational programs Disney used to have are great. I'm sorry to say they don't have them anymore. Yeah. Speaking of the educational programs, I was the one who then always did the All-American College Singers shows every year would write and direct those, which led me to hoop de doo For one year, Disney had the wherewithal to have an all-American musical comedy workshop, all-American college musical comedy workshop, only one year. I'm really sad that, that all of them, the marching band, the, it's not just Disney. The corporate world now does not understand. We need to reinvest in our future. When I look back at all of my eventual Disney co-workers, Tony Peluso, Dave Goodman, 
they all came out of those programs. And then I look at, you know, the people whose careers, Sherry Eichen, who became the writer and producer of Cheers, winning an Emmy, walking up there with her stomach sticking out, was in the All-American College Singers. You know, there was just a real training program where not only did we give kids the discipline, we gave them exposure, but then we could look around and see the bright ones. Marilyn Magnus, who's one of the original cast members of hoop de doo is working for the company as well as she should. Incredible lady. But was discovered... She's with hoop de doo Yeah, she's the original Dolly Drew. Wow. As part of the college program. As part of the college program. Now, go back to the college program. It opened in the summer. It was supposed to run for six weeks. It was such an overwhelming success that somebody in the company said, maybe we ought to extend that. Because it was just put on as a college, work, college workshop. Most of the time we spent, the, the script was all written, but it was having them improvise because it's all about improvisation. It's all about those actors understanding their characters so well they could tell a whole room full of people to do something, and they do it. So over the years, it again has had an incredible amount of people. I will come meet people who will say, I was in hoop de doo And I say, of course you were. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in that many, 36 years or something horrific? I think it's 34. Three times a night, seven days a week, you know, the whole world could have been in hoop de doo But it, it was proof of the pudding of the investment in education has serious payback, not only for the students who are involved in it, but also the company. Where else can we observe people? Where are the go-getters? Where are the brains of tomorrow? Where are the, you know, and in the live entertainment area. But those, the original All-American College programs, Julie Andrews would lecture to them, Henry Mancini, you know, where are you going to go and get paid to have that kind of experience? I was in America doing all these, and then I used to do all the live Mouseketeer shows whenever they would come. There again, people shows. It's odd, it keeps showing up. They didn't, I would do the occasional character Christmas show at uh, the Tomorrowland stage and so Directly. forth and so on, but uh, write it, direct it, yeah. Um, usually my jobs were writing and directing things. What my recollections of the Mouseketeers are, of course the Mouseketeers the original Mouseketeers, right. Cubby, Karen, but just an incredible success. When it ran out of fashion, it was Bob Yanni, who I, you know, he's my mentor. He said, that piece is missing. We have the All-American College singers and band. We don't have performing kids, mm -hmm. which was his inspiration as a young person to be in the Mouseketeer, the Mouseketeer band. So we auditioned only in California and got a live cast who performed at the park, at, there again at the Tomorrowland stage. <laughs> we even had a thing called the Mouska Band. We found a wonderful man named Chuck Wackerman, who was an educator in Long Beach, had like four sons, three of whom were in that band, and one of them now has become like this incredible music producer. Mm. Um, and there again to try to get ethnicity right. I, we went out of our way. We had a, a Japanese girl. We had a Spanish flamenco boy. We had uh, Shante North Cuddy, who went on to be in the next television version of The Mouseketeers. So this was being done before. The this was done before this. Now, the studio, I believe, saw the success of what we were doing live. 
kids were coming in, buying the mouse ears again, doing the whole thing. So they said, hmm, maybe it's time to do another one. And then they did the one with Lisa Welchel, uh, Scott, Pop, you know, yeah. uh, uh, those people. Okay, now when they were doing their television shows, I then was in charge of doing their live shows, which we used to do when they were on hi hiatus for making their television shows at Walt Disney World and at Disneyland. During that time, we even made a... Disney threw together a movie. I forget it was one of Mickey Mouse's birthdays, 50th, 60th, I don't know what it was. But I staged the Mouseketeers in a parade number. And it came out for a minute. It's the only time I ever did anything that was in a, was in a Disney film. Um, so I worked with that group and, and had, at that time, my eldest daughter was about 15. Well, she wanted to be... Julie Pikarski. I mean, and, the, and that was hard. Those girls, beautiful, beautiful girls. Kelly, Julie, Lisa, they all were budding ladies who backstage would pretend they were Charlie's angels. Well, I'd, I'd say, you get this out of your systems here, Tootsie, because you're not going out there. I'd put them in white lace dresses. They looked beautiful. Some of, the, some of them were extremely talented. Allison extremely talented and I don't know where they went I hope they're all well I have nothing but I loved all of those kids and we just had a wonderful time I took them to Toronto Canada to do um, te um, telethons and I was with them a lot did all of that Japan Airlines came to Disney and wanted to do a tour of Japan called come to America to encourage Japanese people to come to America, particularly Disneyland. They came to Disneyland to propose the idea, and Disney was mm, you know, kind of show me kind of thing. Well, uh, the Japanese people who were involved with a really wonderful, talented Japanese theater people, I fell so madly in love with them, I said, yeah, let's do this. So we did it, and it toured 17 cities in Japan, all American cast. Um, was a huge success. We would play theaters that seated 3,000 people. Did that, and it was at that time that the negotiations were going on between the Disney Company and the Oriental Land Company. So it may have been, it was 1978 when we were touring, it may have been at that time it was announced Tokyo Disneyland was to be built. So I kind of segued into the Japanese Disney side because of my experiences. So um, we then did a second Japan Airlines tour in 1981, which was to announce the opening of Tokyo Disneyland. So I then moved with my wife and two daughters to Tokyo and was there till 1985, living there. Park opened in 1983, uh, opened the park, and was the creative producer. I didn't do any hands-on work. People much smarter than I, Barnett, Ritchie, Forrest, Beirut, all of the pros came and put all those shows in. We had the Horseshoe, we had um, a Polynesian Review, we had versions of what had existed here. The cast, that first cast was, was absolutely amazing. They brought Disney literally to Japan. They just glowed. They were just fantastic. So it opened, and I'd been there and done that, so I came back to Disneyland and they put somebody in my chair. That was the one thing, Disney didn't know how to to work internationally. They, 
got a great job for you, and there you'd be gone. Four years later, you're kind of, oh, we forgot. Well, we don't have any room for you. So a lot of people were kind of kept on. I was put into special events, which I knew was like, you're on your way out the door. So I was looking for work, and that's when working with Kenneth Feld on Disney on Ice, I was the Disney representative when that venue, when that whole template was created with uh, Irvin, Kenneth's father, and Kenneth. We had a great time. We liked each other a lot. So then went to Japan and all of that. And I always used to put in the Disney on Ice shows in Japan when they were there to help them with that. Um, oh, you were still with Disney then when you did the Disney on Ice? I was. Oh, when I first did Disney on Ice, I was with them. In fact, I was assigned by Disney. Bob Yanni was originally su supposed to coordinate with the Felds. He'd had some misunderstanding with them at Madison Square Gardens or something. So he... He, he was a little, he said, you go in and do it. And so I was this bull in the china shop that went in and they'd start talking. And Irvin Feld, Kenneth's father, was just this wonderful, wonderful, like a Damon Runyon character. With a cigar and a big pinky ring and he had glasses that magnified his eyes. Hello, Larry, and he'd blow this. I loved Irvin. I loved him so much. We had a great time. And I tried to steer them toward a more Disney type of show because they wanted to just suddenly stop and have an act come out and do that. I said, oh. no, let's keep it all going. You know, let, let one of the Disney characters be the act. We tried very hard to incorporate good skating into the shows yeah. um, because that was the point. Or, or you just have Disney on parade with people running around. Um, so did that first show. So later on when I was back at Disneyland in charge of special events, Somebody said, you know, what are we going to do this summer? I said, let's work with Ringling Brothers. I know Kenneth. Let's do circus fantasy. Oh. Let's do circus fantasy. Yeah. Bring, go to Kenneth and get all of his animals and costumes and so forth, but let's put the characters in. Let's have Mickey on an elephant. Da 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 da. We did that. It was At a the park. At the park, yeah, yeah. at the park, oh, yeah. and that was a great success. I didn't know that was in conjunction. In with conjunction, him. we wow. couldn't have done it without him. Wow. Couldn't have done it without him. So we had great fun and great success with that. And one day after a meeting, Kenneth turned to me and said, "Have you ever thought of working for me?" And I said, "No, make me think of." <laughs> so he did. Yeah. So I ran away and joined the circus. So I wrote and directed six editions of Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus. And since I had already been working on Disney on Ice, and that was always, people misunderstood. They thought, they'd say, oh, I thought you weren't with Disney anymore. I'm not. Disney doesn't own Disney on Ice. It, the, Ken, the, Feld, the Feld organization did. So I worked on lots of those editions, which I already had had from its very inception. We created a whole character training thing because skaters didn't, had no idea how Mickey skated or how Goofy skated or so forth. Yeah, now, to look at them, they're absolutely brilliant. They could teach us something. But and when those first shows, we all wanted to be certain, and the Feld father and son too, that it was Disney standard. Disney on Ice, great success. Um, terrific people. There again, met some of the most wonderful people in the world because I was now immersed in the ice world as well as the circus world. But when I would go in and talk to some of these old people, and I'd say, I worked with Barbette. You did. They'd look at me like I was some kind of circus icon. I mean, and that, my circus life 
was wonderful. The Moscow Circus actually invited me to Russia to come and see all of their venues and talk about a, a project that um, Radio City Music Hall had approached them about. I just, I loved my circus life. So did that, and then when they were starting the design phase of Tokyo Disney Sea, Disney invited me back to what I consider the most enjoyable times, working at Imagineering with all of the designers and actually on the design of the park. The venues, which I had said before, from the minute you walk in, you got to be in that show. Had a great time. With some of the loveliest, most talented people within the company. We created the, the whole living... Little Mermaid show, which yeah. is not to be believed. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, the um, uh, to be able to use the the levels of the SS Columbia as a backdrop. Imagineering just went out of their way. I would see something and I'd say, "Can we have a stage in front of that? That's a good idea." Because we didn't have we didn't have to recreate anything that had been before. This was all new. The same thing as the hangar stage for a show called Mystic Rhythms was the concept was it's the last chance for a gas and a smoke before you head to lost. It's a wonderful old ramshackle tin building, and you don't expect what you when you go in there, and this mind-boggling thing happens before your very eyes. But that's imaginary. That's from Marty Sklar all the way down to the most talented bunch of creative people there. And it was nice to get my head out of. I didn't know what the show was going to be. I knew what the concept was, but I was allowed to be in. And I did a little of that on Tokyo Disneyland, but. Tokyo Disney Sea was was absolutely magnificent. I then left the project for a while, and they came in and produced all the shows. And then I got a late night call from Jim Cora that they were in trouble and would I come back. So I did. I came back then as creative director. It was about a year before the park opened to get the shows all where they should be, and then opened it. And then was asked to stay again. I'm I'm. Uh, shame on me, I'm always the guy that says no, but I had two parents who were quite ill and needed me, so I came back to America and gratuitously my parents died very easily together and allowed me then to do my grand finale, to go back to Tokyo and be the director of entertainment for the park. And what, what types of things did you do? Then I was uh, the creative producer, if you will. I would help and a lot of those shows were done by the Japanese creative team. Oriental Land Company has the Japanese creative team. When it's Big Bucks, when it's Legend of Mythica or that kind of thing, yeah. the big shots come from America. You know, the the wizards, Stephen and all of those people come and put that stuff in. But we do, they do so many shows at Tokyo Disney Resort. Every three months there's a whole new special event which needs a parade, a stage show. You can't, you can't crank that out with foreign talent, a foreign creative people because of the cost, or they just have to live there. So the creative team of Oriental Land Company was led by an excellent, excellent man who just retired, so we'll see where they go. But I've watched most of those people. They were kids of the kingdom when Tokyo Disneyland opened. I've known them for 25 years and watched them grow into. And that was one of my 
one of my jobs when the park opened was to look around. Who are the smarty pantses here? Who are the Marilyn Magnuses? I selected at least five choreographers who are still there or who have gone on into the Japanese industry. Um, music directors, designers, because Japan wasn't, especially the Oriental Land Company, they're not a show business company. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. They didn't understand who actually was doing it, who did the input. So I'm very, very proud of, of our Japanese partners. They do just a sensational, sensational job. Yeah. Always my rule of thumb in, in Japan was to look around me. None of these shows were for me. They were for the people you know, around me, the thousands, the millions of people who came, if they were standing, listening, smiling, crying, you know what, it was working. If they weren't, then okay, yeah. I know, I know how to fix that. Yeah. So, and we all have to learn that as commercial entertainers, we got to learn it for the folks, it is not for any of us. Mm -hmm. And it, it exceeds your expectations. That is one of the things we are to learn. We learn. We all have expectations when we go there. It must meet, but it must exceed your expectations. Tokyo Disney Sea, it does. We hope you've enjoyed this Mouse Clubhouse conversation. Thank you for joining us.